Matthew 16 and 17. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father, which is in heaven. There is a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. There is a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet but and having a sense of its sweetness. A man may have the former that knows how the, not how the honey tastes, but a man cannot have the latter unless he has an idea of the taste of the honey in his mind. So there is a difference between believing that a person is beautiful and having a sense of his beauty. The former may be obtained by hearsay, but the latter only by seeing the countenance. There is a difference between having mere speculative rational judging on any one thing that is to be excellent and having a sense of its sweetness and beauty. The former rests only on in the head, and speculation only is concerned in it. But the heart is concerned in the latter. When the heart is sensible of the beauty and amblemness of a thing, it necessarily feels pleasure in the apprehension. It is, ample, is implied in a person's heart being, being heartily, sensibly, of loveliness of a thing, that the idea of it is sweet and pleasant to his soul, which is a far different from a thing having a rational opinion that is excellent. This is a sermon which I preached at Northampton, uh, which has been called Divine and Supernatural Light. Uh, my name is Jonathan Edwards, Reverend Jonathan Edwards. I was born in 1703 to the family of Esther and Timothy Edwards. There were five girls preceding me and five to follow after. Sandwiched between the two, I was the only boy of the Esther family. Now, growing up in the Connecticut Valley, I learned a lot of different things. And one of the things I learned from my father was he told me always to think with my pen, to write everything down, and when I thought, to actually write it down. And I remember... I, when he left, uh, he was actually the preacher at East Windsor, uh, the parish of East Windsor. I remember when he left to go be the chaplain in the French and Indian War, he told my mother two things. One, make sure he studies Latin, and secondly, make sure he does not learn to become naughty. And I did not learn to become naughty, thanks to God. I instead learned, I was very interested in my father's church and how it operated and the different, the state of the being of that church. I remember there were th around three new converts and I wrote to my sister Mary, who was two years older than me, and she was my closest sister of the ten of them. <laughs> um, I, she was the only one I actually truly connected with and I learned a lot as I grew up to really be connected with Mary and I would always write her letters and pour out things to her. Now, as a child, I played with the Stohan boys, who were seven boys uh, to the east of our house, which was a very large house with a very, very large chimney. But I remember we would play a lot, and as we played in the woods, I would often find my, myself beginning to feel uh, that this wasn't enough. I mean, we were playing, but I, I would mo be more interested in my father's, the church there. And so I began writing about it, and I wrote multiple different small papers as a young boy. I began writing a lot when I was young. Now, as I grew older, I was sent away in 1716 to the local collegiate school. It was called the Connecticut School, uh, the Collegiate School of Connecticut. And you might know it nowadays as by the name of Yale. I went there with 10 other boys, and I studied there multiple different things. I studied Greek, Hebrew, Latin, logic, philosophy, mathematics, metaphysics, rhetoric, oratory, ethics, and theology. And I studied this for multiple years. And I became enthralled with that whole situation. We would wake up every morning and we'd have morning classes after prayer and then we'd have free time for an hour and a half and then more classes and then evening prayer. And I went through this for mo most of my young age. As, as a 14-year-old going to college, I enjoyed that a lot. I hear a lot of you don't go to college until so you're like 18. <laughs> Anyways, 
So uh, as I grew older, I actually gave my valedictorian address in Latin. And this is a part of my life when I was beginning to struggle with my faith. I was, wasn't sure what I believed or if I believed what it was true or not. But I was actually giving, I graduated from this school, and I became, the, as the valedictorian, I began my MA, my studies in that. And I was answering the question of whether a sinner is entirely reliant upon God for salvation. But during the time when I was answering that question, I struggled with my faith in that sense. So really, today we're going to be just talking a little bit about myself, but um, we have a lot to consider in the sense that it's New England, and obviously America is now existent, but New England at the time was struggling with its faith as far as it separated from England, and it was now, well it wasn't separated, but it had left England as far as to be free from faith. One of the biggest struggles in my schooling era I encountered was the question of God's sovereignty. And this was often came to a head when Rector Cutler came to the school and he was the chaplain at that school for a while. Now, I remember he concluded one of his prayers of one of his meetings with and all the people said amen. Now, to, the, to nowadays people, that might seem not a very big problem, but this is actually a direct quotation from the Church of England's Book of Prayer. And it was, uh, that was the battle in, I might, as a young boy of what was my faith and what should I believe and what should I not believe as the young Jonathan Edwards. Anyway, I graduated from this the school and went on to the, be a, the sub-pastor at Northampton uh, in the school, the place where T- Solomon Stoddard actually was the head preacher. Now, my father married into this family. Esther Edwards, my mother, was the daughter of Solomon Stoddard. And you'll see the relevance of this more importantly when a different person comes and talks about me. But um, <laughs> he, the, it was the idea that my, my father married into a very powerful family. Solomon Stoddard basically was the ruler of that area, this Connecticut Valley. He was, in a lot of sense, the military leader. He was the judicial leader. And he obviously led a church. Now, Northampton wasn't your small church. It had 200 families in it, different, large families. This is not your modern family. This is your older family with had multiple children in that sense. It was a very, very large family. So he led a lot of things in that area. And so the position of preacher of Northampton was very important. Now, following Solomon Slaughter's death, there was termed the, the felling of a great tree. That great tree was Solomon Stoddard. And I, as the sub-pastor, who gave a, a, one of the two Sabbath sermons a, day, a s- Sunday, I was now the preacher at that church, and I encountered multiple different dissensions, and after being the preacher of Solomon Stoddard's church for a few years, in 1741, I was actually expelled from my own church, which is a very heartbreaking experience, and we'll get to that later with someone else talking about me, but... It was the idea that I encountered, I had a very interesting childhood in the sense that I loved to write. I rode, I read a lot, and I would often go out on a horseback ride, and I would actually take a pen and paper with me and the ink, and I would actually just start writing on the horseback ride. I would stop the horse and start writing. You may have heard the story of me when I was rewriting. I would think of something, and... And I would actually think of, oh, that's a great thing for a book or uh, for a paper or a sermon or some just interesting thing about God. And I would take a piece of paper and I would pin it to me myself. And I would remember, ah, that goes with a certain saying or thought I had. And I would pin multiple, another one as I was writing. And because I, I would ride between different places. And I would often come home bristled with white paper. And after I got home, I would go into my study. And Sarah would help me, my wife, would help me remove the pieces of paper. And I would remember, ah, that was the first one I put on. And that was this. And I would write about that for a little while and take the next one off. And I was able to rem- remember what I was thinking about on a long whole day's ride. 
that was one of the things that I, I enjoyed and I allowed me to actually study God's scripture and learn more as I was writing. My father told me to think with my pen. And when I gave sermons, like I gave an expert, excerpt here, I'm not, I was not your Patrick Henry or your John Whitfield. I was, I, I'm very a complacent speaker. I wasn't very enthralled. I, was very, I actually read my sermons. I, I never ad-libbed them at all. I would actually just read them off the paper, and I would ne- very rarely look up, as I showed you earlier. It was the sense that I wanted to make sure I had everything right for God. I was not your John Whitfield. I remember John Whitfield. I had him come to my church one time. And John Woodford was the man who they said could make you laugh or cry based upon how he said the word Mesopotamia. And it was very true. He could move the crowds much greater than I. And so when I had him come to my church one time, I, I was seeking to have him change the church, which was at that point had experienced a revival and then a, the crash of the, they didn't have the substantive belief. I, I was hoping he would come and give them a fresh energy. And he did give them, and again, we'll begin to that a little later on, in the, the sense of what type of energy that was, and was it a good type of energy. After I was expelled from my church, I went to s- preach and serve as a preacher of a smaller church, and went th- was there for a while, until I was called to be the president of Princeton. And I was the president of Princeton for a very short while, and I wanted to show the students that I trusted in modern medicine. Now, there was the idea of Newtonian science in that era, and I believed in Newtonian science, but one thing I, I, I concluded was that gravity was God. And it was, an, and it was an example of God's essence in the world, the divine nature holding everything together. That's something I held to. I would refuse to let science become our God, but I knew it was very important as far as we need to fulfill the creation mandate. Now, at that time, I decided, well, there's an inoculation for smallpox. And a lot of the students were a little hazy about actually taking this inoculation. But I wanted to show them that it was okay. So I took the inoculation and died by it. And so I'm dead. All right, so Jonathan Edwards died in 1758 after he did take a smallpox inoculation. So today we're actually going to be talking about Jonathan Edwards and a few different things about him. Um, There's a lot to know about Jonathan Edwards. He was... A man that didn't have a huge influence as far as he wasn't like involved in a huge uh, revival as John, John Whitfield, and he didn't he led his church through a series of struggles. It was a very large church, and so the biggest thing we can learn from Jonathan Edwards, as far as we'll get to in a little bit, is the idea that he was a man who fought through challenges and impacted the world through his writings. He wrote a book called The Faithful Narrative, which was probably his biggest impact in his life. But we'll get to that a little later. So first of all, we're talking about Jonathan Edwards. And now he's a U.S. senator from North Carolina. And everyone has a signature. And Jonathan Edwards, the preacher, had a signature of the way he wrote and what he did as far as writings. He wrote all of his sermons. He wasn't the person that ad-libbed his sermons. He actually wrote them all. And he had a signature as far as he wrote a ton of things. There's 28 volumes being compiled of his writings, his letters. And so it's, it's an example of a man who wrote everything down, everything he thought, everything he believed. And Jonathan Edwards has a great signature, John Edwards, but we're not here to talk about him. We're here to talk about Jonathan Edwards, the singer. But, and Jonathan Edwards, the singer, had his own signature. But we're not here to talk about the honky-tonk stardust cowboy. We're here to talk about Edward Jonathan Jacks. No, this is more like it. Jonathan Edwards, I had the opportunity of playing Jonathan Edwards at the Vision 4 Mega Conference, uh, History of America Conference, 
And I study a lot about Jonathan Edwards, which is why I volunteered to do this today. Um, I know a lot about him. I learned a lot about him, and he, he, he impacted my life a lot. And so I had the opportunity to play him along with other reenactors, reenacting Jonathan Edwards as Jonathan Edwards, and I actually wore the same costume there. But we're actually here to talk about the actual Jonathan Edwards, Reverend Jonathan Edwards of the 1700s, who had his own signature, and as we already mentioned, that was basically his writings, Jonathan Edwards of Northampton. Now, in life, there's a lot of challenges, and Jonathan Edwards had multiple challenges in his life. The first challenge he actually experienced was the pre-church challenges. Now, the pre-church challenges are really have a lot to do with the Solomon Stoddard. Now, I mentioned that earlier, and the idea of Solomon Stoddard was like the king of the Northampton. He believed he, was, he could do basically whatever he wanted. He was the most powerful. And what went along with this is there were factions forming, but he liked pleasing everyone. His goal was to make it the mega church and to make everyone happy and everyone accepted. So what Solomon Stoddard did is he said, you don't have to be a, a professing Christian to be a member of this church. And you don't have to be, be a professing member or a professing Christian to get the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. And that was a big contention between Jonathan Edwards and Solomon Stoddard. It was a sense that Jonathan Edwards was in the church as like the sub role. He would speak one Sabbath to Sunday. And so he was kind of the backup preacher in a lot of ways. And he was taking on the administrative roles while Solomon Stoddard would be like the head of the whole entire church. So the biggest challenge there was the allowing the, the factions to form. Jonathan Edwards was trying to say, no, we can't give everyone the Eucharist, so we shouldn't give them the Eucharist. And that was a big challenge as far as Jonathan Edwards was trying to balance his duty to God, his faith, while at the same time being in a position that could influence the world as far as being at the church. And the biggest challenge he had was the church operations once Solomon Sutter died. Solomon Sutter died, and no one really knows why. He just probably died. But it was a sense that now Jonathan Edwards was now in command of a vessel, which he really wasn't, no one really wanted him to be. There was the, the his in-laws of the Stoddard family really didn't like Jonathan Edwards. He was, who, where did he come from? Who was he? Why was he now our preacher, our pastor? So his first sermon he actually gave to this church was concerning apathy. He was condemning them for their apathy. So the first sermon he gets to give to the 200 family church as the preacher is, you're apathetic get off your chairs and go do something, change your life, become and have revival and reform. And this really didn't help him at all. It made a lot of people like him, dislike him more. And because he was a dull preacher, he didn't move the emotions. He gave the the facts. He gave really well-written sermons, a lot of them, but he never really moved the people in the sense that he couldn't get them to emotionally get going as far as what we want to have a revival. And so he, he struggled in that sense. And now in 1730, his in-laws didn't like him because he wasn't playing the Pope. And Solomon Slaughter was actually deemed the Pope of the Connecticut when he was actually the preacher. So here comes Jonathan Edwards, a humble guy who's had a lot of challenges in his life, who believes in God and really believes what he believes in his faith. He comes in, he's not willing to bend to the emotions, to the, the, the aristocratic element that was in this area. It was a big church, a huge church in that area. And so obviously there was factions forming, people saying, well, can you do this for a favor? And he refused. He was very rigid in his faith. And he preached on envy. He kept on talking to the, the church, trying to get them to have a revival in the sense that he was trying to help them move on and change from their apathetic tradition. They, would, they were very concerned with the world, the church. They were very concerned with like, how much money do I have? What's my status? And he was trying to get them to move away from that. 
Now, in 1735, there was an earthquake, disease, and the Indians were attacking and raiding villages. And so it was starting to move the church towards the idea of, well, maybe we should consider different things. But it all came to the head when two people died. A young man died of pleurisy, and a young married woman died. And when when both of those died, the young people woke up and said, hey, people are dying. We should maybe consider. And that's when Jonathan Edwards finally had the the revival he had been looking for. And that was the revival that made him very, very famous. He wrote about it in his faithful narrative, which was published all over. And England knew about it. All of New England knew about it. It was a sense that finally you had people coming to Christ. 300 people in his own church were brought to Christ. So it was an explosive revival that he was focusing mainly on the young people because he realized that they were the most susceptible to being able to be moved because they weren't so caught up in the aristocratic factions of the older individuals, the parents. So 300 people were converted, and the church exploded. Jonathan Edwards is happy. He has a nice church that's now doing great things. Now, the problem is you have this explosion of growth, but it was, it was, it was emotional. And that was the problem that Jonathan Edwards ran into, is the fact that you have this exploding growth, but there's no substance to it. So when it exploded, it now got, became pride. It became, and very shortly after this explosion, a few years later, it became the emotion Alism came into effect, the effect of having the people being pride. And Jonathan Edwards actually says, and he said that Satan is let more loose, is what he wrote in one of his diaries. Satan is let more loose. It's the idea that the pride gave way to Satan, and he actually believed that their pride opened the door to Satan. And it caused a lot of interesting affairs. Joseph Hawley, for example, which was essentially an elder at the church, uh, thought he, one Sunday thought that someone told him to kill himself. So in the church, on the first, on one church service, he killed himself in front of everyone. And so it was the idea that this entire church was now getting into very interesting things. People were having 24-hour trances of emotional love for God. And so people were, it was very interesting, very strange occurrences. Now Jonathan Edwards is dealing with a revival he got, but he didn't have, it wasn't really a true it, it led to more problems, essentially. Factions were now forming. People were proud, proud, I'm now a Christian. Factions began forming more and more and more. So as the church preacher, he was trying to deal with reviving people and bringing them to Christ, but also dealing with the conflict of that sense. Now, this all leads to really the culmination of that, which is when he was actually expelled. He was expelled for two reasons from his church. The first reason was there was a group of teenagers that got a hold of a book and were doing some inappropriate things with this book. And so Jonathan Edwards called in everyone who reported the children and the children. Now that led to some problems because now you have everyone in the church thinking that all of these kids are guilty of this, whereas only a few were, other words, were, were reporting. So you have some parents who were very upset that now you have their kids being incriminated for something they actually didn't do. So that led to more of the hate against Jonathan Edwards. He was the upright preacher who wouldn't bend to the will of the masses, and people didn't like that. The second problem was when he absolutely denied the Eucharist, the the Lord suffered unless you were a registered Christian and whether unless you were a, and members had to be Christians to be on the rolls. So that's where he really shoved the people away. And that's where the in-laws of Solomon Stoddard decided that we need to get rid of Jonathan Edwards. And so he was expelled by his church, kicked out of his own church, which he administered for multiple years from when he became the preacher. Now he was given one more sermon and that sermon he gave wasn't condemning apathy. He was just pleading with them not to keep me around, but please change and turn back from your ways. So the next things we're going to look at is the changes that Jonathan Edward endured. As far as 
what did he change as a person individually and how can we learn from that? The first change he really endured was his belief in God. When he was young in his school, there's basically three phases he endured as a, as a kid. He had, when he was very young, he believed, but he didn't know why. And when he got older, he believed and he knew why, but he didn't have the emotion. And later on, he got the emotional connect with God. And so when he was younger, he believed in God. He wrote, a, a, you might have heard of his paragraph, his essay on the spider. And he talked about how the spider is an example of God. And how like, he, used, he wrote multiple essays talking about God and talking about how, who God is as a young boy. A 13-year-old was writing these very extensive essays on God. And he, he did follow through with his father's command to think with his pen. He wrote everything down, which allows us to learn from him and actually chart his life. When, in his, when he was younger, he right before he graduated from college, he started journaling. And he journaled like this for the rest of his life. And he, in his journals, you actually can see his, him recounting his, his struggle, emotional struggle with who is God, what is my relationship to him. When he was actually studying for his MA about God, he was actually questioning God. He was wondering who is God and the idea of why have I not experienced an emotional revival? He, he, he knew why he believed in God at that point. He'd gone through school, but he didn't really have that emotion. He was a person with the head knowledge, but no heart. And he actually said that it, w- it was like having, like that a, a faith has to be with the heart and the head. You can't have a fire without the heat. You have to have both things is what he talked about. So in school, he was struggling with that in effect. So, Later, he did really believe in God. And obviously before, his MA was answering the question of whether sinners are reliant on God, which gets into the next question of his belief in sovereignty. Now, I mentioned earlier, Rector Cutler came to the school while he was there. And previous to that experience, he really did believe in God's sovereignty. Rector Cutler came in and introduced Arminianism and the idea that is God really in control? He began questioning that, and you had this battle in the school between the two viewpoints, the Calvinistic viewpoint, which is what Jonathan Edwards believed more, and the Arminianist viewpoint. You had this battle between the two, and Jonathan Edwards was caught in the between, the middle of that. He wasn't really sure where he sat, so he was being bounced back and forth in that sense. But when he finally experienced a true conversion during which he, when he was studying for his MA, that's when he believed what he believed. And he was actually called to be a pastor for two years in New York City, interrupting his study for his his degree and that was the time when he came away from that family truly ingrained in god he came away writing in his journal that i had a new fresh sense of what it means to be a christian and believe in the sovereignty so it one thing i've learned from jonathan edwards is that it's okay to have different phases of your christian faith it's not like you have this golden bar that once you get to is i'm perfect i don't have to do anything else he experienced he questioned he wasn't quite sure so a hero of the faith had his own questions throughout his faith and the journey of his life so he actually doubted at times he had questions at times he was caught in struggles so these are not new or adverse to great people it's part of being a christian is to respond properly and to fight through challenges and he did become to believe in the sovereignty of god and he believed nature, as I said earlier, was an example of God's sovereignty. And th- there was also a battle at this time between Arminianism and Calvinism. And then you had the battle between the Newtonian science and Christianity. Now, some people believe that Newtonian science explained all the f- supernatural part of the universe. And so we don't need God. Jonathan Edwards believed that we need both. The sense that we can un- use science to understand God better and understand what he's created. And that's the Christian, proper Christian approach. And so he was trying to defend that battle and keep that going and believe in God's sovereignty that God created everything and that we actually can learn from that. The most interesting change he experienced is his belief in charismatic worship. 
when he was younger, he didn't have the emotion or the head knowledge. He got older, he got the head knowledge, but no emotion. And it wasn't until after his wife, Sarah Pierpoint, who now became Sarah Edwards, was radically converted at an older age that he reconsidered his belief. Previous to that conversion of his wife, he was very, he would give sermons and lectures saying you need to keep emotions in check. You can't let emotions get in control. He believed they could be from the devil in the sense that they were Satan trying to cover up the knowledge of God with this this fluffy feeling of emotion for God. John Whitfield, for example, would have an entire room crying and weeping and... Jonathan Edwards believed that wasn't necessarily the best thing because people who have these 24-hour trances where they would just sit there and do nothing, just like cry. Some people could, would cry uncontrollably just throughout an entire service, just cry uncontrollably. Even if you're not speaking, they just keep crying and crying and crying. One guy actually thought he saw Christ actually shedding his blood up on the, pul- the pulpit. And so Jonathan Edwards obviously realized that couldn't be true. So he was trying to control this emotionalism and replace it with facts and knowledge of God. That was where he came from as his, he was a very intellectual man. He knew a lot about God. So he was trying to put that into the people say, hey, no, no, you need to control these emotions and understand God, not have this just, I feel God in me. And which he believed, but so that was what he believed originally. Now, when John Whitfield came and gave a, and preached at his church, his wife, who he already thought to be a Christian, experienced a radical conversion. She was totally changed. She started, she was enthralled with God now. She was doing more and more with the family. She was, previous to this, she was a good mother. She would lead her kids along and she was teaching them all the good things about Christ. But after the conversion, she really experienced that change. And that's, that's what got Jonathan Edwards thinking. He, he started wondering, okay, so my wife, who I thought was a Christian, just kind of got a revival. So what does that mean and how can I apply that? And so he, he had a shift of thinking from we can't have emotion to now we have to use it and it should be a part of our life, but it shouldn't be like the main thing. So that's one of the biggest things he experienced as far as charismatic worship. And a lot of his sermons and a few of his lectures and papers and books actually talk about this. One of the most, most famous books actually addresses this subject of emotion in worship. And he believed it still should be controlled. As far as modern days, I'm not sure exactly what Jonathan Edwards would think about modern worship, but he would probably could label it as too emotional, the sense that it's too much about how I feel versus what is God actually trying to say to me. Now, Jonathan Edwards gave his fam- famous Sinners of the Hands of the Angry God speech, his sermon, and the first time he actually gave it, it was to his own church, and they didn't really like it. They, they were kind of watched it and like, okay, this is a nice sermon. Now, when he went and speak, spoke at Enfield, that's when you have the famous people weeping. He couldn't actually finish the entire sermon. So, and at that, at that point, he was experiencing more of things he thought, words he thought he wrote that were very intellectual suddenly began influencing people's emotion. And so you have a man who is now changing to understand more, maybe God can use emotion, but we should control it, just like everything in moderation. So then you have the chess that he has left for us. Jonathan Edward has left multiple things for us. One of his most famous things he left for us is his books. The entire corpus of Jonathan Edward's works, including previously unpublished works, is available actually online. And you actually can go and look at it. And I read a lot of it when I was studying for Jonathan Edwards for this and for the Vision Forum reenactment. And the works that have been compiled so far have been compiled into 28 volumes. So this is not 28 little books. This is 28 volumes of his letters, his manuscripts. This man wrote a lot of words. He was always writing and he was always learning in that sense. He spent 13 hours a day in study. So over half of the day, he was in his study studying, and he would often break up that studying with physical exercise. He'd go out and chop wood, or he would just go do something physical. So he, he would study for 13 hours, be locked in his den, and then he'd come out, 
with a beautiful sermon. And he would, as a preacher, he wasn't the preacher that went around to people's houses or I'm going to knock on your door and see how you're feeling. He wasn't that type of preacher. He was the preacher that I preach on Sundays, you come, I'm going to deal with things at the church, but I'm not really going to be involved in your life <coughs> later. And interestingly enough, I have a cough today, and Jonathan Edwards uh, was actually a very sickly man throughout his entire life. So I thought I was going to you know, demonstrate that by being sick. So he was actually six foot tall, which fits with me well, but he was a tall guy, slender guy, and he, it, he was never physically very fit. He was never physically very energetic, which is why he would often preach looking at his paper like this the entire time he was preaching. So he was a man that you might consider a socially awkward nerd in the sense that he, he could deal with people, but he worked more on knowing about God than worrying about how people actually thought felt or carried how he looked. He wasn't so concerned about an image as far as who he was for Christ. And that's one of the things I've learned from Jonathan Edwards is that it's not as important how we look or how we give a message. It's more important what we're giving. And he was a great example of that. The story goes of him when he gave his sinners of the hands of an angry God speech sermon. He was actually, the story goes that he was looking at the bell rope, which you ring the bell with, which is at the top of the back, back of the church. The story goes that he was either looking at that in the back or his his paper, he never looked at anything else. He wouldn't look at the people. He was very a dull preacher. He, and he would often complain about that, how to his wife, he talked to Sarah saying, I can't get people emotionally involved, which is why he had John Whitfield come and, hey, can you please get my church going again? And the problem with that is when John Whitfield got it going, it led to the, more to the idea of emotionalism, which Jonathan Edwards then was fighting against. So you had, he was trying to grow the church, but the church was fighting him at the exact same time. So that was his biggest challenge of dealing with his church. He was a preacher who his own church expelled. So his life was riddled with challenges. He never really had a success in the sense that I'm a successful and I'm continuing to be successful. His life was a series, a series of ups and downs. And that's what we can learn from him in the fact that a man experienced failures and successes very regularly. And he was still able to influence the world for God. And we still can learn from him today. As I said before, his sermons was one way he influenced the world. He gave a sermon, uh, I read earlier about the natural lights. He gave, one of his other famous sermons is about charity and its fruits, and it describes heaven as a place where perfect love exists between God and all his creation, how love is altogether holy and divine. Of course, his Sinners at the Hands of Angry God was one of his most famous church, uh, sermons. And it was an example of, that was really, if you go and read that, that, that is often interpreted modern days as that's who Jonathan Edwards was. Some bitter man who just wants everyone to be fearful of going to hell. And that was just one part of his sermon. That was his most famous sermon because it was the only sermon that really got people emotionally involved. But that is only a fraction of a man. And if you look at the rest of his sermons, most of them are uplifting, very happy sermons. That one's not a happy sermon at all. But the rest are happy and he's so he has a diversity of different characters. So one thing you should know about Jonathan Edwards is he's not the fire and brimstone preacher. That was a, a rare occurrence for him. He was more of a very happy man. He was very nice and very gentle to people. And the children were of, the, of the town, when he came back from a long journey, would all run and say, Mr. Edwards is home. Mr. Edwards is home. One girl, Susie, uh, Phoebe Bartlett actually is her name, was one of the most touching stories that I experienced when I was studying Jonathan Edwards is a three-year-old had her 11-year-old brother got converted by Jonathan Edwards during the revival. So this three-year-old little girl goes into a closet and shuts herself in for multiple days. And her mother can't get in and just has, he's hearing her little girl cry out to God and weeping. And finally, after a few days, the little girl came out and said, I can know God now. I can see God now. 
she's little, this little three-year-old experienced a conversion for Christ from Jonathan Edwards' teaching. So Jonathan Edwards did have a way with little kids and, and the little girl would always say, Mr. Edwards is home, he's here to preach. So Jonathan Edwards wasn't the evil guy. He was a very nice guy, but his way of delivering his message was unique. And that's what got him in trouble with his church. He wasn't willing to bend to, how do I look? How can I be popular? He mattered more what he actually message he actually gave. The final thing we can learn from is the resolutions. And this is probably the most famous thing of Jonathan Edwards, besides the sinners of the hands of the angry God. And I compiled a few of his resolutions. There was actually 70 resolutions. And one of the most neat things about it is he started it when he began his journal. When he began journaling, he began his resolutions. And a lot of times we think, well, Jonathan Edwards made these resolutions and he stuck to them perfectly for the rest of his life. Actually, he didn't. The, when he first started his resolutions, he struggled with them immediately. He would write in his journal, lamenting, saying, I can't hold these. I don't feel the emotion. There's no drive to hold to these. And that was when he was experiencing the questions of who is God, what is sovereignty, why don't I have this emotional draw to God? But when he did experience that reconversion in around 1723, I believe it was, he, that's when he said, okay, now I'm going to stick to these resolutions. I have a reason to stick to these resolutions. And so now he has seven resolutions he wrote that he's no longer complaining, I can't uphold them, I don't feel the need to follow them. He actually followed through with them. There are 70 resolutions, and he read them every week for 35 years. So that's more than 1,800 times before his death in 1758. He read these resolutions every week, and he labored to actually hold them. I have a hard time holding a few resolutions at the beginning of a year. This man held to them very well throughout his entire life. A few of them are, for example, his fifth resolution is never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. And he really did hold to that as far as he was always working, always trying to promote his belief in God, his understanding of God. He knew Hebrew, Latin, English, obviously. He was always studying the old, the, the Bible, and he believed that the best way to be a good Christian is to know the Bible very well, which is why he spent 13 hours a day, more than people spend working or studying normally nowadays, studying about his God and preparing for his sermons. His seventh resolution says, never to do anything which I should not be afraid to do if it was the last hour of my life. And that one touched me a lot because he really did live up to the fact that he was always doing things and he resolved to be a man who was doing everything for God at all times of his life. He really didn't have a point in his life where he was being apathetic or not working to reform his church or help his family out. He was always loving his family and he had seven kids incidentally. And I believe four of them were girls. So he's always had girls in his life. Um, his 10th resolution is resolved when I feel pain to think of the pains of martyrdom and of hell. And that applied very well to his being expelled from his church. His church rejected him and kicked him out of his own church. He'd been there for multiple years. I believe it was from, he was kicked out in 1741. It was, he was instated when Solomon's daughter died, whenever that was. Um, so he was there for over 15 years for sure. And his next resolution, his 20th resolution is, uh, sorry, 14th says resolve to never do anything out of revenge and when he was expelled from his church he wasn't bitter with the people he was frustrated and he talked to his wife like saying am i a failure what happened what did i do wrong and she kept on telling him no no you did everything you should have done they just kicked you out because they weren't ready for the truth and so he didn't respond with revenge that's something we all can learn from it's not a you slap me i slap you it was he got kicked out of his church and he didn't kick back to resolve his seventh resolution is that I will live so as if 
that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Again, he was giving every hour of his life to God. His next resolution is resolved to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. And with 13 hours of study, he did indeed learn more about God. And he furthered his belief in God. And if you read his sermons, his books, you understand that he didn't just know about God or know about Christianity. He actually lived it out and truly did believe it. His 56th resolution is to never give over, nor in the least slacken, my fight with my corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. A lot of times we seem to put these heroes of the faith up on pedestals saying they're perfect men. They had to be amazing. They had to have the perfect life. He didn't have the perfect life. He struggled a lot and he failed a lot in the sense that he didn't always hold through his resolutions. He didn't, wasn't always a perfect man. He wasn't always morally perfect. He did bad things in his life. But as one of his resolutions, which we can learn from, is that he would always keep trying. He would never give up and say, oh, well, I did this bad thing, therefore I never can be good again. He kept going. He kept at it. He kept pursuing Christ. Resolved that I would always do that which I shall wish I had done when I see others do it. He learned from other people and he watched other people. As a quiet man, he would watch other people in social environments. When he went to parties, he would oftentimes sit around and just watch people and see how they acted and note people that did good things and were actually being nice to people. And he tried to actually mimic those people. His, fi- his seventh resolution is very interesting. Let there be something of benevolence in all that I speak. So just a few of these resolutions, we are probably all thinking I have don't do that very often. So this was a man that set very lofty goals and tried to stick to them. And so we can learn from that in a lot of senses. Something I'd la- I thought, um, I talked to Mr. Welch about this, was we, 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 there's a lot of factual things we can learn from Jonathan Edwards, and we can learn a lot about his faith. And if you want to know actually about what he believed as far as certain things, you, you can go research that and learn about like the, like I did. But one of the things I think we can learn from is that resolutions are very important. And we make resolutions we don't hold to, and we don't make the good resolutions. And I think we can learn from that fact that he made some very awe-inspiring resolutions. Now, these aren't necessarily like the cookie-cutter 70 resolutions to become a successful preacher. It's, we should make our own resolutions. And so I have two guys who have things to pass out right now. And I would encourage you to write down one resolution, just one, write it down, and we'll recollect them. Mr. Welch will have them in this box, and he will. no one else will see them but Mr. Welch. And in a year we will pass them back out to you and you can look at them and individually say, did I actually hold to this one resolution? And I'll go ahead and close in prayer, I suppose, Chris. Where's Chris? You good? All right. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the blessing of the rain and thank you for the blessings of the rains that you give us that are the challenges in life and the, the, the blessings in life. Thank you that after every rain, the grass is greener. I pray you please bless us all as we go about our life and as we set goals and as we attempt to pursue you, that we can do that most efficaciously and that we can be most dedicated to you and we can learn from Jonathan Edwards and the other heroes of the faith and take the things that they learned and they did and apply similar dedication to you in our life. Thank you for the blessing of the ability to gather together. I pray you please bless the speaker in the next service. You would bless them as they bring the word and help us all to grow closer to you as we seek to glorify you in everything we seek, uh, we think, and that we do and we say. In Jesus' name, amen.